0: Uh, we're now on our fifth Prime Minister. Uh, yes, we are. We started seven years ago, and we have our latest Prime Minister. Uh, I don't think Rishi Sunak gets into the champion of champions. I've got to check with Matt Shroom. I don't think he's he gets into that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> congratulations to him for uh, winning uh, without an election. And we're not a satire show. We're not a news show. Um, some would say we're not a snooker show. But uh, let's move on to uh, congratulate them. The man of the moment, really, is Mark Allen. Mark Allen won the Northern Ireland Open on Sunday. uh, Retained the title. Very hard to win those tournaments. So to win it back-to-back, very impressive. Uh, Beat Zhou Yulong in the final 9-4. It was 4-1 down. And, you know, I I get the logic. People say, well, Zhou Yulong missed the boat in the afternoon. If he'd have got a lead, he would have won. He might not have done. He he might have been 6-2 up and lost. We will never know. Uh, But Mark Allen, I think, showed discipline throughout the event. He found a different way to win rather than just what he's best at which is getting in scoring heavily I thought he showed great discipline he he played percentage snooker his attitude was superb I mean I did the match with Andy Lee that finished at 1.22am and you know on another I think another year he might have lost that but he stayed disciplined he stayed focused and that was true in the final as well he battled hard in the afternoon three things happened in the evening he played better Joey Long played worse he missed a red right at the start of the session and didn't really make the most of chances. And the other thing that happened was Mark Allen did have the better run. There's no two ways about that. Uh, he had two key flukes, and he also fluked to snooker from which uh, he well Joe played the he hit the hidden hope and Mark Allen made a good break from it. But you know, there's a kind of there's a kind of sort of um, argument that the snooker gods help you out, and Joey Long maybe maybe they hold it held it against him that he made a few errors. Mark Allen deserved to win that tournament. And fair play to him. you know. To uh, For years, he struggled in his home event, the Northern Ireland Open. And now he's like Joe Davis there. He can't lose. Um, except to say, of course, uh, mysteriously, he was identified as Billy Bobbins on the TV graphic. Billy Bobbins is the Northern Ireland Open champion. Um, I wondered if he was another uh, potential uh, runner to be Prime Minister. But it turns out Billy Bobbins... Uh, well, here's what happened, OK? And it's not Eurosport's fault. Uh, because they take the coverage from a production company... And I know what's happened here. They, they're they preparing the graphics in the afternoon that they're going to use at night and they put a kind of placeholder name in, a city name that they're obviously going to change when they have the name of the champion, except they forgot to change it. <laughs> so it could have been a lot worse than Billy Bobbins. You know, Billy Bobbins uh, doesn't seem so bad when you think of some of the names they could have put in. Uh, obviously a bit of a howler, but um, it cheered everybody up. And um, the, the, the £80,000 and indeed the ranking points uh, do go to Mark Allen. Now then. Sorry, I was distracted there for a moment. Uh, you know, the pace of life moves quickly. But to Alpha Bonzi, as ever, has cut straight to the heart of the matter with three questions. So let's, let's deal with them. Uh, he says, the referee... I tell said, so after Mark Allen retains the Alex Higgins trophy, my three quick, question, quick questions are... Number one, the referee is there to serve the player, not the player to serve the referee. Did the refs forget this during the Jimmy White and Joey Long slow play incidents? Well, of course, with Jimmy, it wasn't slow play. Um, I'll answer these one at a time. The Jimmy White incident, which got huge coverage, um, he was uh, playing uh, against Luca Brassell, 3-0 down, struggling, potted a red, and the cue ball... Essentially, he's on the brown to the middle. The referee, Ben Williams, for some reason, called out blue. He was never going to play the blue. Jimmy corrected him, and then used an insult which I, I still don't really understand. It's an old London term, apparently. Uh, I'm not even going to repeat it, because I'm not quite sure what it means. Um, the referee started to laugh. Jimmy White asked him what was funny. And then, as Jimmy turned away, he sort of raised his hand, and the referee interpreted that as a, an obscene gesture and, and warned him against his future conduct. So it all escalated. out of Jimmy being on the brown to that, it all escalated you know, very quickly. Um... The Joe Yulong incident in the final was that he was warned in one of the frames. He'd taken over two minutes on a shot and the referee, in that on that occasion, Leo Scullion, uh, said that he would have to decide what shot to play. On that latter incident, I was surprised. I mean, Leo, you know, is, is, a, is a snooker man through and through and I wouldn't question his judgment as a referee. But the, the warning came out of the blue in as much as it's not like Joe had taken two minutes over a series of five or six shots. That was kind of... It was that one in isolation, really. Now, actually, his average shot time was on the slow side during the final. But a couple of frames got a bit dragged out. But I think a lot of people thought that it, it can't just, as I say, just sort of came out of the blue a little bit. But it, the referee, you know, they are there meant to serve the player. They're, they're, it's not really true. I heard that said on the coverage yesterday. They're not there to serve the player. They're, they're there to officiate the match. And they have to use their judgment in these areas. Some people would have disagreed with his decision. Some people would have agreed with it. It was less controversial, I think, than the Jimmy White incident. Um, here's the thing, OK? That particular referee is known, actually, for having a bit of a laugh in matches. Now, that might just be a nervous thing. The job's not funny. It's one of the most humorless jobs in the world, really, being a snooker referee. You're there to you know, fetch out the balls, hand the, hand the equipment to the players, and be in charge of the, the play, being in charge of the rules around the play, and you're there to ensure that the match is played properly um, I don't think anyone really come out of that with a great deal of credit Jimmy obviously you know he's a proud man he's struggling at three 0 down he wants to play well the referee I think has to read the room in that scenario and kind of having a laugh and a joke Jimmy was not in the mood for laughing and joking clearly um, and so on, on, in that on that basis um, you know maybe just sort of don't get involved like that. Jimmy, uh, I mean, he, he said he didn't regret anything he did, but um, he may look back on it and feel, well, maybe I should have just backed away. But uh, it, it, seemed, it seemed quite a minor incident, actually, to get a lot of coverage, really. Uh, and maybe it's because we're not used in snooker. I mean, in football and a lot of sports, you know, there's always rowing with with officials. But even tennis, that, it happens a lot. Uh, snooker, we're not really used to it, uh, so maybe people got a bit excited. But... Uh, I have respect for the referees, personally. I think it's an important job, and, and it's one of those jobs where you only really notice them if if they either make a mistake or they do something that's a little controversial. They're long days. I mean, particularly the home nations, they start at 10. There are quite a few occasions where the person who's refed at 10 is refereeing at sort of 10 at night. So I'm not going to criticise the referees, but it's certainly both incidents, it's fair to say. attracted comment. Alpha's second question. What next for Alan, and especially Zoe Yulong? How does Joe learn from this defeat? I think it's interesting that, I mean, for Alan, what next for Alan is, I think he'll motor now this season. Obviously lost in the British Open final, won this one. For him now, it's to maintain that momentum. And actually, I mean, Alan McMahon said early on in the week on Eurosport, he thinks Mark Allen will have his best ever season. And that's already shaping up uh, to be the case if he can win a couple more. And obviously the World Championship, um, is the one, isn't it? Now, we're months away from that, but he's only ever been in one semi-final I remember? Only one one table match at the Crucible, which is incredible, really. And there must be a reason for it. And I was wondering about this. I I wonder if Mark Allen's problem is he doesn't win enough bad frames, actually. The scrappy, fragmented frames. And you get plenty of them at the Crucible. You've got to win 73 frames to be world champion. Maybe he doesn't win enough of the sort of frames that the likes of Mark Selby and Mark Williams and John Higgins win. Um Because I've commentated on a few of his matches over the years. Mark Selby completely outfoxed him a couple of years back. Um, Ronnie O'Sullivan thrashed him this year. Uh, It's a different sort of match, maybe, um, because that was more a match of breaks. But there's obviously something, there's obviously a reason, otherwise he would have done better there. So maybe that's it. Um, We'll see, though. uh, Put it this way, if the World Championship was next week, you'd fancy him strongly to do well. Show you long. I'm not going to join in this chorus of, oh, of course he'll win lots of tournaments. We don't know, actually. We don't know whether he'll ever win anything until he wins something. This was a chance. I was pleased to see him reach the final. I thought he played brilliantly in the semi-final against Anthony McGill. He's someone who I've you know, really felt for an, a long time could be a top player. But he did fall away in that final and he can actually look back on it and, and, and question why. And as I say, there's a, there's a mix of reasons. His form dipped. Mark Allen's improved. There was a bit of luck involved as well. Um, I thought it was quite a shame. We saw him at the interval kind of sat on his own in the players room on his phone. He didn't have anyone with him. Look, um, that's just the reality of the kind of, you know, the fact he's got to the final. But, I, I, what I hope is that he isn't too downcast by this because I think when he lost to Neil Robertson 9-0 in the European Masters he was. I mean it was a bit of a thrashing and it, it, I think it set him back. Hopefully he will pick up the pieces from this. We've seen and we saw Mark Allen. Um and we saw Luca Brasel do the same last season, losing a final and then win the next event. So for Joey Long, the next event will be the UK Championship. If he turns up there and does well, then, you know, all, all is well. I hope he gets in the top 16. I like him a lot. And, uh, you know, he's, he's got a bit of class about the way he plays, I think. And Alpha's third question. Considering the support the Northern Ireland Open gets, how was the tournament originally allowed to sink without trace in 2008? Well, of course, it was the Northern Ireland Trophy then. Uh, we, we don't have Sir Rodney Walker who was chairman of the WPUS at the time on the podcast. But I imagine, like as with most things, it was probably financial. Now, Matt Tarrant has written in an intriguing question here. What's going on with all the noises in the McGill-Joe semi-final in Belfast? It's so distracting for the viewer. I'm assuming the players can't hear it and that you can't hear it either. It sounds like someone is unwinding sellotape, maybe wrapping presents. Gremlins, I guess. And he said, "Well, I, I won't read out the last bit. It's a, it's a little, little bit praiseworthy." But um, and thank you, Matt, for the comments. Uh, I didn't hear it. No, I, don't, I, I, I do wonder that the, there was odd sort of creak. I don't know whether it was the floor or, or, or something, but it sounded like. Those watching on television, from what you're saying, it was um, slightly overemphasised. Although I haven't heard many people say this, so I don't know. But um, that's the answer, really. I don't know. I'm afraid. I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could uh, give you a better answer. Uh, let's move on uh, They're not all about the Northern Ireland But I they're not really in any order uh, <laughs> But here we are Now Monica wrote last week Upbraiding me that uh, I hadn't congratulated Ronnie For winning the Hong Kong Masters Anyway she's written back uh, I hope you had a good week in Belfast I'm happy for Mark and him retaining the title He's the informed player at the moment I'm so happy that he that, that gets rewarded I felt for Joe He seemed to have no one there for him See that's what I was saying He, he kind of there on his own uh, but this loss will build him up. He's a great player and improved on his last finals appearance. Apologies about last week. You did indeed congratulate Ronnie. And as you said, me being a big fan, it probably was not enough for me to recall. No problem, Monica. She continues, I'm sure someone has asked you previously, but do you play? And if so, what's your highest break? Do you ever get to play with the Stars during downtime at events? I also wanted to know your take on Judd's comments about Aaron Hill. I was disappointed in Judd. Aaron probably looks up to Judd and felt that regardless of him being interviewed at the end of losing... Which he had agreed to, he should have kept it professional. I loved your commentary throughout the tournament. I look forward to your lowdown this week. Well, thank you, Monica. Um, I don't play with the players, no. I mean, that would be like, uh, that would be like, um, well, be like me playing guitar with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, we're just ridiculous, really. I don't, I wouldn't, I'd no interest in that, really. Uh, no. Um, but on the more substantive point about, uh, Trump, yeah, I mean, he was obviously very disappointed. Um, it was a rather sort of ungracious interview, but you do get those when people lose. It reminded me a lot of Stephen Hendry in his pomp. When he lost, he would sort of splutter out a few words, would find it very difficult to say anything good about his opponents. Um, it does. I know a lot of people don't like it. Personally, I, I have no problem with it. I don't think Aaron Hill would particularly care either. Aaron Hill won the match, so I doubt whether he's that bothered. Um, I understand why people have a problem with it, but you've got to understand, you know... <laughs> We spend a lot of time talking about sport. We spend a lot of energy um, giving opinions about it. These people are playing it. It's their livelihoods. They're at the sharp end. So it matters to to them as well. And I would put it this way. I would rather, although I understand why people don't like the sort of general manner of that interview from Trump, I'd rather see that than have him go on social media and say, oh, you know, well played Aaron, good luck in the next round. And some particular, entirely false tweet designed to make him look good, which is what, what seems to happen these days. They never mean it. Okay. So I'd rather actually you saw direct honesty, you saw directly into his soul rather than doing something for PR reasons. Um, he could have been more gracious in the interview. Yes. But he just got beat. Someone put a microphone, well, our our dear friend Michael McMullen put a microphone under his, under his nose, and that was it. That's what came out. Um, and he said what he thought. Now, you can agree, you can disagree, but, uh, you know, what you can't argue with is that he wasn't being real, because he was being more real than, you know, you often see. Now, Tom Milliard, he says, apologies for the longest email. Well, don't worry, Tom. We, we, we're we're padding out, we're padding out the, the podcast as it is. He says, after last week's episode, I wanted to write in on a number of topics raised. As a Suffolk-born snooker enthusiast, I was thrilled to see the reference to Lovejoy. Now, this last week, if you weren't listening, um, it turned out that Lovejoy, Ian McShane, and this was an old BBC series, an antique dealer who solved crimes, uh, he invented the Mark Williams break-off, in effect. That's what we established. Anyway, he so said, I love this series. And they've even done a tour of some of the major sites from the series, most of it based around the small town of Lavenham. There we are. Uh, the next point raised by a fellow listener was regarding the dates for the Crucible. In a sport which prides itself on being, stroke, becoming truly global, finishing its biggest event of the season on a Monday is madness. Living abroad myself, I usually take a day off to watch the conclusion of this event, something that fans probably shouldn't need to do. You asked about how fans watch around the world. All I can say is thank God for Eurosport, player, stroke, app. I live in Poland and I can have the feed with English commentary, original studio. Fortunately, Eurosport also shows the ITV events in Europe too, although at the British Open this year, it didn't have the ITV commentary. Uh, which was usual in previous seasons But single person commentary by Philip Studd And someone I didn't recognise Any idea who he was Why don't we have the ITV commentary anymore The other commentator I believe was Mark Valady Who's a tennis commentator um, or, may, or, or actually there was another one Andy Stevenson um, Who was doing it Yes they do it on their own um, Because it, it, it doesn't go out in the UK I don't know why um, You can't select the ITV commentary That's a technical thing that I literally don't understand <laughs> um, Tom continues, lastly, the 900. What an invention this is. I really hope it grows in stature and has even more legends, fringe pros next year. Also, maybe starting just an hour earlier would be nice. It finishes at 2am over here. Would you consider guest appearing on the show for a week? <laughs> they already have Folds, Carter, and Rachel Casey on there. Well, it's not really up to me, is it? I mean, uh, you know, they, they haven't asked me, but um, I, 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 it's been well received, I think, by. Uh, by snooker fans, and uh, they're all doing a sterling job, Neil and Rachel and all the rest, Lee Richardson, uh, he's on there, all doing a sterling job, it is late, you're right, I've never made it through to the end, Uh, 1am British time, is a little late in in, in the week, but uh, anyway, thank you Tom, and um, yes, I mean the substantive point there about the Crucible, we talked last week about, you know, this finishing on a Monday, it's a bank holiday in Britain, it's not anywhere else, is that really sustainable, Um, and... You know, it's a row that, well, not a row, but it's a discussion, I'm sure, that will uh, will continue. And, and talking about watching from around the world, I did ask what, what it was like uh, for people in various parts. Scott Pease has written in with a very detailed uh, uh, breakdown here. He says, in your last podcast, you asked about how people from other countries watch snooker. I've been watching snooker for a few years. The first match I watched was the 2019 Trump-Higgins final, courtesy of YouTube. As of the 2020 season, there have been two broadcaster options for the US, Matchroom and DAZN with only one of them broadcasting a given event. So so Scott is watching in America, OK? So he, so he says, who shows what? DAZN seems to get the big-ticket items, the World Championship Masters and one or two of the others, while everything else goes to Matchroom. OK, live viewing. Matchroom maintains a few hours' worth of rewind time, but no video on demand for later viewing. I can't recall what DAZN does. The lack of VOD is not ideal, since I'm eight hours behind UK time. Okay, price. Dizone is twenty pounds a month while Matchu sorry not pounds, dollars. (laughs) Dizone is twenty dollars a month while Matchub is five dollars a month. Because of this I only sign up for Dizone to watch the World Championship. They both offer cheaper annual packages as you'd expect. Okay, now recent issues. He says someone has been tripping at the finish line with respect to the US snooker broadcasting this season. The British Open and Hong Kong Masters were completely unavailable. The European Masters was unavailable until I think the quarterfinals. The Championship League, as I recall, also had some sort of broadcasting issue. To make things worse, the World Snooker Tour website has incorrectly listed some of these tournaments as available on DAZN, and then, again sometimes incorrectly, amending to match them. I could easily have wasted subscription money. I recognise that international media rights are complicated, but how to watch really needs to be right. Last year they had a calendar of how to watch events for the whole season. That calendar was handy for ordering monthly subscriptions, so that I could see where i get more days of snooker to watch. In spite of that complaint, I want to add that I think WST has made a lot of good decisions lately. The guaranteed money for professionals, the mixed doubles, the format changes to both the uh, British Open and UK Championship, and I'm sure other things I'm forgetting unaware of. I hope they're all long-term successes. You're quite right, thank you Scott, you're quite right though that uh, you know they, they need to get that sorted if they're going to be um, telling you, you know where you can watch on, on which platform. You need to know that it's correct because you don't want to spend your money as you say on something that w- you're not getting the service. He did actually email me again a couple of days later. He said, uh, "I'm watching the Northern Ireland Open Matchroom. I can see both tables, but there's no commentary, and I don't appear to be able to rewind at all. There's usually commentary, so there's clearly a few issues." And uh, you know, again, we're kind of sport in Britain. We just turn on the telly, there it is. But a lot of places around the world, clearly, where people are trying to watch, there's various issues that uh, you know that need addressing. I guess. Tony Finnegan, and Tony gets straight to the point here. In a nutshell, do away with the high break prizes and just reward the 147s. The recent superb 147 breaks by Mark Selby and Marco Fu got me thinking about the 147 prize. Indeed, what price can you put on the drama and excitement of arguably one of the biggest achievements in snooker? Even today, being far more frequent than they used to be, they're still special and should be fairly rewarded. So the purpose of the email... Does the snooker tour still operate a rolling 147 prize? If they did, it was unfortunate for Marco Fu, who achieved his 147 immediately after Mark Selby's, so would therefore receive less than had it rolled over for a few tournaments. I think the Crucible offers a special World Championship 147 prize, but I'm not sure about the other tournaments. One outrageous idea I've had would be to scrap the high break prize completely for each tournament on the tour and replace it with an annual 147 prize pot which could amount to the magical number of 147,000 or more if desired. This would then be split equally amongst all of the successful 147 players at the end of the season. Oh, sorry, yeah, maximum players at the end of the season. I realise the High Break Prize is important in amateur and club tournaments as an extra reward, but maybe not so much on the professional tour. I look forward to hearing your wrath on my suggestion, but we all love 147, don't we? Well, thank you, Tony. And there's no wrath, I can assure you. I mean, the the maximum prize, obviously, that... There's not a rolling prize anymore. No, uh, to answer your question, um, because they became more common, they became harder to insure, and therefore, you know, you can't ha- you can't be paying out twenty, thirty grand per maximum that's sport will go skin. Um, but you raise an interesting point here, which is this: Do we really need the high break prize anymore? Does anyone remember who made the highest break? And by and large, I mean, it tends to be made by someone who's already. Gone deep in the tournament. Now, actually, Northern Ireland. It was Lu Ning. Um, So the five grand, I'm sure, is welcome for him. But so often, it's someone who's probably won the tournament, been in the final. It's another five, ten grand that you know, I'm sure, is welcome. But they don't necessarily need. Could that money be put into a pot, as you say, in in another way? It's 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 something that has never really been questioned. We just there's always been a high break prize, and it's a nice thing. It's a nice achievement to make the highest break, but. I don't know. Maybe it's, if they're looking to sort of save a few quid, maybe it's something that uh, I'd put it this way: if they got rid of the high break price, I don't think people would be marching in the streets with placards. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't. Um, well, we'll see. I, I suspect they'll keep it. But uh, anyway, thank you for your thank you for your email. Uh, Ian from Cornwall has sent me a, a story uh about China and their sort of COVID stance it doesn't seem to be changing. There was a suggestion it might. But uh, I think that the thing is, Ian. There's so much sort of um, lack of real, solid information on that. We don't know. We hope to go back there, but it's, there's no guarantee it's going to happen soon. It's not going to happen this season. Um, there's hope for next season, but but we don't know. We don't know. Lee Wall in Liverpool writes: uh, I was interested to hear a listener's opinion that the World Championship should finish on a Sunday rather than on a Monday, and your subsequent su- ha, and your subsequent suggestion that the Championship begin on a Friday evening. You then said one problem with that you would lose the two empty mornings that come as a welcome respite during the two-table stage. One solution to this would be to reduce the semi-finals to three sessions, a suggestion that's been made in the past because some feel three days is too long to complete the semis, and the first day of the semis is currently a bit lifeless. This means the quarterfinals will be played on the last Wednesday and Thursday, with the semis on the Friday and Saturday. The empty morning that is currently on the last Thursday could be moved to earlier in the tournament, perhaps the first Monday. Hope this all makes sense so far. The semis could be best of 15, with the three sessions played over 9, 9 and 11 frames. Although Sod's law might mean the final session both massively overrun. I appreciate some would disagree with this change to the semis, but otherwise the only problems I can see are the reduced amount of time to re-rig the table set up before the semis, a potentially reduced recovery time for a player has to finish a quarterfinal on the Thursday evening and start the semi on a Friday morning. What do you think? Well, Lee, thanks for email. I completely disagree. I've said this before. I think the minute you start tinkering and cutting matches... It's like a sort of domino effect, and you you kind of messing with something that has worked. And you say the first day the semis can feel lifeless. That is true sometimes. It certainly wasn't true this year. Um, The Higgins Sullivan match, the Williams Trump match. You know there was huge anticipation for both of those matches, and you know that both matches were involving all the way throughout. I don't agree with changing a format that works. I don't agree with cutting the number of days of the tournament. It's reducing the value of the tournament. So I'm happy to keep it as it as it is. And, you know, we live in a crazy world. You know, I mean, by the time I've finished this podcast, we may have yet another Prime Minister. I don't know. We may have another one. But isn't it nice to have a constant? Isn't it nice to have one oasis of sanity in a mad world, which is the World Championship at the Crucible, all the arguments people put forward for moving it, for changing the format, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's just keep it as it is, OK? It's one thing we have that we can look forward to That he's never changing, and there's a lot to be said for that. Um, To quote Paul McCartney, "In this ever-changing world in which we live in," uh, perhaps shoddy grammar, uh, not for me to say. Now, Mark Stevenson writes, "You must be doing something right, as it's the second time I've written into your podcast after never writing to it anywhere before ever." Okay, or never writing into anywhere before ever. Anyway, it's a bit random. But I was watching Erling Haaland Erling the other week take home yet another match ball for scoring a hat-trick, and it got me thinking, what happens to the balls used in famous snooker matches? You see balls used in football, rugby, tennis, finals, etc. for auction regularly. In time of writing, I'm just reading the ball from the England-Argentina 1986 World Cup match is expected to reach 3 million quid. I also remember being in America years ago and seeing dozens of small boats on San Francisco Bay waiting for some guy to hopefully hit one out of the stadium and break some record or other as the ball, if they got the hands on it, would be worth hundreds of thousands. I know snooker memorabilia won't fetch such figures, but what happens to the balls used and such after the match? E.g. does a tournament champion get to keep the cue ball, full set of balls, if they won't? In their later years, it could be a nice little earner for them to auction in retirement. I've listed a few here I think would be worth a few quid if someone has them and they're out there somewhere. The balls used in the first ever World Championship final in 1927, the blue that Alex Siggins rattled in the 82 semi-final. Uh, rattled in, that is. Uh, Cliff Thorburn's cue ball from the first maximum, uh, televised maximum. Well, of course, at the cru- first match with the cruise, wasn't it? Steve Davis uh, made the first one on TV. Ronnie's cue ball from his fastest 147. Surely the most valuable of all, if ever auctioned, the black ball that Dennis potted in 85 to win the World Championship. Grateful for any light you can shed on this. Indeed, it may well be I'm just being a complete saddo, and no one but me even cares about such things. Well, you're in a good good company, Mark, in that case. It's an interesting point. I think the problem is, how do you prove which, you know, the black ball? I mean, the, I, I guess the football, you know, the, the, the match footballs, you can distinguish between them in some way. But a black ball is a black ball. Now, there's a lot of people who claim to have that black Dennis Potted. I believe Robert Maxwell was one of them. <laughs> the late Robert Maxwell uh, claimed to have it. But how, do, how, do, how can you authenticate? authenticate it because you know they all a snooker ball of a particular color you know it's hard to distinguish you know two pink balls two green balls how do you know which is which um so uh, it, it's it's maybe a market that's not kind of that thriving for that reason um but uh in terms of can the players i, I what well, the players i think can can certainly request a cloth um so i imagine the the, the balls from the final um, quite often these are auctioned off for charity and, and so on, but the specific, you know, like you say, the cue ball from Ronnie's Maximum or the blue from Alex Higgins. I mean, put it this way, sort of pr- absolutely proving that it was the one. I think would be the issue, um, and that's maybe why this market, as I say, is not really is not really lifted off. Uh, now then, uh, make sure that I'm not reading out emails I read out last last week. Uh, just bear with me a second. You can amuse yourself. You see, other podcasts will take an ad break here. But um, I don't know how to do that. Dan saves us with this email. He says, A few thoughts on some recent discussions. You've been talking about how the World Mixed Doubles was designed to bring in new audiences to the sport, which is clearly a positive ambition. However, I feel the question of event location is also key to this. With World Snooker Tour organising many new tournaments, including the doubles, in locations which are only easily accessible by car, therefore excluding a large chunk of the potential audience, such as the 50% of under-30s who don't own one. It seems that generally only the Triple Crown events are consistently held in populated areas with reasonable public transport connections. These events are great, but are expensive. Many of the other events are very cheap and extremely easy to buy tickets for, yet put prospective fans off by being so inaccessible. Take Milton Keynes or Brentwood. Having to try and get a taxi back to the station at 11pm is not ideal, and puts me off making a day trip. I think it's great that snooker is a lot less London-centric than many other sports, but 20 million people live in London and the south-east of England, and many areas have excellent transport, which runs until after midnight. Yet the only tournament that's a viable day trip from London is the Masters. I know city centre venues, particularly in London, are going to be expensive to hire, but pushing tournaments into out-of-town shopping centres is not going to grow the sport. Even a basic hall or leisure centre on the outskirts of London would be accessible to millions if it was located next to a station. Also, I would have thought that some conference event venues would welcome snooker due to the international TV exposure of their business it brings. There must be a better solution than defaulting to Milton Keynes and accepting that only a 100 or so people will turn up for the first few days of the tournament. I wonder if WST have looked at the possibility of Magazine in North Greenwich, a new venue which looks perfect for snooker. On a more positive note, I'm glad to hear some effort has been made with the seating. It was always odd that the seating is designed to squeeze in as many people as possible, when often most of it goes empty. It would look better for WST and the TV coverage if the seats were made bigger, spreading the fans out a bit more. Well, the the venues, it's a a sort of constant theme on this podcast. We've talked about it before. I agree with you. It's best to have them in populous areas where people live. And, I mean, Belfast is an example of that. The waterfront is in Belfast City Centre. It's easily accessible. Um, same with when the Welsh Open was in Cardiff. The one in Edinburgh that's coming up the Scottish Open, I think, is in a good area, you know, quite close to Princess Street, uh, and, and, and Waverley Station and all the rest of it. So, yeah, that, that's, that's, you're absolutely right. That, in an ideal world, that's where you would want them. I guess the issue is always money and venues in the cities cost more, I suppose, than hiring, you know, a leisure, leisure centre somewhere. But I do feel, I do agree with you. I think that if you want to get, sheer numbers in you have to have it somewhere where people can get to sheffield for example is in the city center york is a nice location um and alexandra palace is actually not the easiest to get to but it is you know there are links, bus links and so on reasonably close so uh, i don't disagree with any, anything you say um it, it comes down to you know whether they're willing uh, to spend the money or not A couple of points of business while I remember them. There's a new Snooker podcast, Framed, a BBC podcast that uh, Shabnam uh, presents. And she's a uh, a BBC sports reporter and uh, a big Snooker fan. She's already done one with Stuart Bingham. She's done one with uh, Sean Murphy. So you can check that out. It's about time BBC had one. It's on BBC Sounds. And also, other exciting multimedia news. Myself and Neil Folds this week, this Thursday as we speak, We'll be taking part in a Twitter Spaces chat for ITV Sport. Now this is ahead of the Champion of Champions next week, so um, we're going to be building up to that. Neil has worked on every one of them. It's the tenth staging of the Champion of Champions this year, and we're going to we'll have the the groups uh, by then, and we're going to go through uh, talk about that. So it's going to be six o'clock UK time. You can listen live, you can listen afterwards uh, as a recording. It's like a live podcast. I did, I did do one for World Snooker Tour a couple of months ago, ahead of the European Masters. But Neil and myself, all being well, if we can work out and make it work, if you check out the ITV Sport uh, account, 6 o'clock on Thursday, you can listen to us talking about the champion of champions. I think we'll end um, with Ina Butler. Uh, we, we, we've, we've sort of got past the whole Storm Strachan thing that, we, that was raised last week. Um, and this is on a similar theme to the last email. Your own idea of launching tournaments in big cities that you mentioned on a recent podcast is a great idea. New York, Sydney, Singapore, Montreal, Paris, Buenos Aires, Cape Town, and not least Dublin. Bring the tournament back to Goffs. There's still a big appetite for snooker in Ireland. We have a long history of great snooker players in the Republic. You've often remarked on your listeners' ideas for tournaments. Great idea, but who will pay for it? Can you describe a bit more about that? Eurosport, BBC ITV, wouldn't Eurosport get involved in a tournament in Ireland? And the corporate sponsors, Betfred, etc., they would too. Does there have to be a local TV, TV station involved? Do they supply the TV equipment, engineers, cameramen, etc.? I'd love to know a bit more about what it takes to set up a tournament. And what are the blockers? Well, we'll just dive right into that, shall we? Here, this is, this is the problem, okay, with... When people say, oh, there should be an event here, there and everywhere. You can't just click your fingers and make it happen. You need a certain number of things in place. Now, if you're an independent promoter, the first thing you need is a sanction... From World Snooker Tour Because they effectively The players sign a contract That they can't play in events That are not sanctioned So Say you want a tournament in Dublin Okay You need to go to World Snooker Tour And And get their Sort of official sanction um, But what they will want to see Is proof that you can Pay for the tournament uh, That you can pay the prize money That it's a viable thing You're not just some chancer Coming in Saying Oh I will put a tournament on And it's a little bit chicken and egg Because it's hard to get that finance in place, um, if you don't have the go ahead from World Snooker. But to get the go ahead from World Snooker, you need the finance in place. So it's kind of difficult to marry the two. But what you also need, let's say you do get World Snooker to agree to the tournament, you need a venue and a lot of venues are booked, you know, a couple of years in advance. And what you also need is the dates and the, and the, and to get the dates, you need a TV company to agree. To show them that week So firstly you need a broadcaster Then you need them to get the the broadcaster To agree the dates And broadcasters have preferred dates Because they have other programmes Particularly sports channels have other sports to show Um, Then you need to see if the venue's available that week So there's a lot of hoops you've got to jump through there um, In order to get the tournament on And this is why I mean the Turkish event They've got the Turkish Masters on That took a few years to get off the ground For these very reasons getting the finance in place, getting World Snooker on board, getting a broadcaster in place, getting the venue available the week the broadcaster wants it. There's a lot of uh, pieces that have to fall into place. So when people say, and they've said it this season, oh, it's terrible, we haven't got more tournaments on, it's not that simple. Now, of course, World Snooker start, from their perspective, um, in, a, in a position of advantage, because they don't need to get a sanction from themselves. They can put tournaments on. But they still have to consult with broadcasters, they still, I mean, you know, Goffs is a show ring. It's a, it's not a sporting venue. It was a great venue for the Irish Masters, but it was always that same slot, wasn't it, in March every year. Um, and also, but, yeah, you know, let's be clear. Goffs is no good as a multi-table venue. If you're going back to Goffs, it has to be a small invitation event. People say, let's take a ranking event there. No, that wouldn't work at all. Um, there's not room. It worked as a one-table venue, and it was one of the best one-table venues. The old Irish Masters was for 12 players. Um, the top eight in the world of four wildcards. I'd love to see that tournament come back. You say about local TV, well, RTE is the national broadcaster. They always used to show the Irish Masters. Um, but, you know, it, it, that tournament has kind of come and gone. And I think, personally, I think it got ruined when it was made into a ranking event. You know, it got, it got moved to a hotel in Dublin because you couldn't have all the players um, clearly at Goff's. There wasn't room. And it just became kind of another tournament. It fell by the wayside in the in the snooker politics of the era. It became not sustainable to run. Um, But listen, we know how big snooker is in Ireland. It'd be great to have a tournament back there. But if you want to put one on, what I'm saying is you need so many things to fall in place. You need to raise the money. You need to get the sanction from World Snooker. You need to get a broadcaster. You need to get the broadcaster to tell you what week they want. And then you need to see if the venue is available that week. And by the way, you also will need a sponsor I guess to, to get the money back. Um, and you'll need the players to play in it, so you'll need the prize money to be a certain level, otherwise the top players won't play in it. So all these things need to fall into place. It's not straightforward, and this is why, you know, it's not, it's not just as, as simple as clicking your fingers and putting tournaments on. There's all these different things that need to, uh, fall into place, and, and, you know, it's difficult. But, uh, well, even uh, other, um, points here, Refilling big venues. Oftentimes, it appears, tournaments outside the UK get good turnouts. Obviously, the Hong Kong Masters, but the German Masters is a class event. The Turkish Masters had a good turnout this year, and heck, even the lowly Gibraltar Open had plenty of bodies on seats. You'll know a lot more about about it than me, about the facts, about my perception. Yes, some of the Chinese tournaments in the early rounds, there's often very few in the audience. But when you look at all the UK-based championships in the earlier rounds, even some later stages, there are big gaps in the audience. There's a thing in sales and marketing that I think applies here. You either go for low price, high volume sales, or for high price, low volume sales. Say 100 tickets at 30 quid each, you'll make 3,000 quid. Fill a venue of 100 people, but 300 tickets at a tenner each makes you the same turnover of 3,000 quid. So at the lower price, you can fill out bigger venues, which has a knock-on effect of generating sales the local food outlets, shops, etc. But more importantly, it gives a much better impression to support of the sport to the broader TV viewership. Heck, You'll, you'll fill a well-situated venue of a 1,000 seats at three quid a pop. Getting that balance right is very important because perception by the global audience, the type we saw at the Hong Kong Masters nearly two weeks ago, really makes a big big impression of the popularity of the sport and will help the sport to grow. Heck, go crazy. Charge four quid for the 1,000-seater venue and you've increased your turnover by 33%. Well, yes, I mean, in China, they, they overcharge for the tickets. I mean, when, when we were there, um, they... they the, Ticket prices are too high. There's also it seems to be less of a culture of going to sporting events from what we've sort of observed. Um, clearly, was not the case in Hong Kong. Um, pricing is is an issue. I think in general, snooker is competitively priced compared to other sports. Um, some people felt the doubles was a bit overpriced recently, but it all ties in together, doesn't it? It's it, it's not just the pricing; it's actually where the event is because if there's somewhere that's easily accessible through good transport links you're maybe not having to spend so much money as you would if you had, as a uh, correspondent said earlier getting taxis and so on so it all knits together there's clearly still a bit of an issue with venues some are really good, some are less good and I guess we'd all like them to be all really good um, the German Masters is, is well attended you, as you say but of course you know, as with Hong Kong there are some countries that only have one event or the most two, so the, the audience is 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 going to go to those events. If they're going to go to any in Britain, we have fourteen events, so the the audience is going to be spread around those fourteen. Um, so you know, therefore, you know, some will be better attended, I guess, I guess, than others. Now, hot off the press, as I'm recording this podcast, they've just released the Champion of Champions uh, draw. Now it says it says this has not been released yet to the public, but by the time the podcast goes out, it will have been. Um, so you'll have seen this already But anyway, I'm reacting in real time I'm literally reading them off as we speak So Monday, the group is Mark Selby against Lee Walker <laughs> but Maybe start that one a little bit early uh, John Higgins against same Vafai That's a good group uh, That's a terrific match actually, Higgins Vafai Tuesday, Neil Robertson against Fang Zheng Yi And Kyron Wilson against Ryan Day I fancy Kyron in this tournament, I don't know. There's no logic to that I know he's won a tournament this season I think he could do well. He's in Robertson's group, which makes that tough. But um, anyway, it's an early shout from me. Uh, is now is this the group of death on Wednesday? Judd Trump against Luca Bresel and Mark Allen against Joe Perry. That's a tough group, I think. That's a that's a good group. And Thursday, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie always seems around Thursday in the Champion of Champions. He's up against Robert Milkins and Jazing Tong against Mink Nutcherat. So the prospect of O'Sullivan. Against Yao in the in the group decider uh, on Thursday night. Yeah, very interesting uh, lineup because Selby is the only player this year to have gone off the ranking list. Um, so all the others have won tournaments. Um, yeah, very interesting draw. And uh, yeah, I, I, like I say, I, for some reason I, I I sort of bend towards Kyron Wilson in that tournament. But anyway, that's a great tournament. It starts Monday in the UK on ITV4 now. It, Hopefully it will be explained to people based on what we heard earlier, where else you can uh, where else you can watch it. It's a great highlight of the season actually, I think, because right from the first year 2013, it had a bit of class about it. Um, I like the fact you get the two matches in the afternoon, then the, the respective winners play at night. It's a bit different to what we used to um, because they're not strictly groups are they? They're really last 16 and quarterfinals. but I like the fact you get a story each day. So looking forward to that. Judge Trump is defending the title. I think he's in the toughest group there. He's got Luca Purcell to play Mark Allen or Joe Perry. So that's not an easy group. But it'll be a good week in Bolton and uh, I look forward to that. As I say, Neil and myself will be doing this Twitter Spaces chat on Thursday. And after that, after all of that, um, there are are interesting developments which I'm not allowed to speak about. Um, And I hate when people say that because it's like all these political journalists who have, have the inside skinny from all these sources but they don't tell you who they are. But Next week, there'll be news that hopefully people will feel is positive um, regarding one of the other torments. So that's all I can say right now. Ridiculously mysterious. It's not. I'm not building this up too much, but it's, I, I think it's good. I think it's good. Um, <laughs> rather ragged edition, um, it's got to be said. I don't think it'll be uh, gracing the BAFTAs. Um, not least because they don't hand out BAFTAs podcasts. But anyway, we, you know, we, we live in, in certain times. But the snooker continues. Champion Champions next week. There is English Open qualifying this week in Leicester. Um, so, so the beat goes on, really. The beat goes on. But uh, that's it for now. We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. Uh, and uh, you can, of course, email us podcast at mail.com. That's podcast at mail.com. Um, we're heading into the sort of prime snooker season now. The champion of champions followed by the UK Championship. That's not a bad double, is it? It's going to keep us entertained the next few weeks. So uh, we'll be back next week with something. Do keep the emails coming in. And uh, in the meantime, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slut, you can get lucky just about anywhere.